For years, I was so fed up with shampoo, I just stopped washing my hair. I quit completely. I was so sick of poofy, frizzy, limp hair, distorting my natural oils. Until a few months ago, I found Modern Mammals, and it changed everything. And by the way, right now you can visit modernmammals.com and use code LSS for 10% off. So check that out. So look, I heard about this through the podcast, and before I agreed to advertise, they sent it to me, and I was reluctant. But let me tell you, I should not have been. This stuff is absolutely magical. My hair felt better, smelled way better, and most importantly, looked better. And I know it will do the same for you as well. It doesn't have those hair-ruining chemicals like other products, and it doesn't leave any leftover residues. It works. Don't believe me? Go read their awesome reviews online as well. Go to ModernMammals.com and use code LSS for 10% off. Again, that's ModernMammals.com for 10% off with promo code LSS. Don't forget to use our promo code LSS so they know we sent you. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Lead Singer Syndrome. That's what it's called. I'm your host, as always, Shane Told, bringing you a very, very exciting episode. This is super cool. This is one I wasn't sure ever would happen. Brett Detter of the Juliana Theory is here, and the Juliana Theory is back I thought Brett had moved on, you know, he'd been doing tons of stuff with solo country music, writing music for movie scores. I wasn't sure he was going to make his foray back into the scene, but here they are. The Juliana Theory signed to Equal Vision Records, couple singles out, more coming. I'm super, super excited. One of the most underrated bands, I think. A little bit ahead of their time. We talk all about that and more. Don't go anywhere. What news do I have for you? Well, the first piece of news, kind of news, is we are doing tons of stuff on Twitch. I am, in fact, doing a live podcast just in a couple hours on there. And next week, Tuesday, Derek from Mayday Parade will be jumping on Twitch to do the podcast live. If you can't catch it, no worries. It will be here on this feed in a little while. But if you want to catch the raw, uncensored, and with video, then make sure you go follow the Twitch channel, which is twitch.tv slash Shane Told. It's a lot of fun on there, man. Really great platform, really positive. I am totally digging it. And I do a bunch of other stuff on there, too. I play music, and every Wednesday, Mike Howell and I, we get on there. We talk about the new records coming out. So it's just a great place to be. Check it out. 
If you do want to support the show, though, also check out the All Access Club, leadsingersyndrome.com slash allaccess for as little as $6 a month. That gets you bonus episodes. That gets you merchandise. That gets you all this good stuff that, you know, we need to keep this thing going and keep great guests like Brett coming at you every single week. And in some news with my band Silverstein, we have just announced something pretty cool too, a concert series we've called Out of This World, three shows in February. Yeah, it's going to be really fun. Um, I I don't know, but tickets are available. So pick them up. We've got VIP packages and merchandise. And if you buy all three, you get a deal. So if you head over to silversteinstore.com, you can check out all that stuff. And I'm just excited to play music again. I mean, I know it's not in front of people, you know, without a screen in the way, but I'm still loving it and it's going to be super cool. So don't miss that. Silversteinstore.com. Anyway, I'll keep it short again. Let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Brett from the Juliana Theory. I hate the word dongle. <laughs> we'll start right there. Yeah, it is, it is a really awful word, isn't it? It is a very strange word. It makes it sound like everything you're doing is a joke, you know? I agree. And it's not a joke. This is not a joke. Dongles aren't a joke, but it's a terrible <laughs> word. I'm here with Brett. Is it Brett Detar? Detar? How do you say it? I never knew. Um, I say it deader because deader. that's how my family says it, but... I've heard every way yeah. possible, and it probably should be Tatar because it is French. So, okay, whatever. We got it. Well, here we are. Setting the record straight right off the bat. Well, hey, man, the big news, the Juliana Theory is back. That's exciting for a lot of people, including myself. Um, I mean, a band that was ahead of its time, I think. Um, and it's just exciting to see new music uh, and a great new video. With uh, Can't Go Home, which uh, just came out, and you got a new one coming out in a few days, Better Home. Uh, just talk to me what's going on, you know, now with this holiday season and new stuff coming. It must be bringing back a kind of like exciting emotion for you. Yeah, it's really, it's wild. It's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting feeling to kind of revisit something, but to also try to, you know, bring it into a different era when it has been away oh, yeah. for so long. It's, oh, yeah. it's just interesting. Oh, yeah, it's always interesting, I find, when bands go away for a long time. And let's keep in mind, this is the first new music uh, from the project in 15 years. Um, you know, the band I always think of is Refused. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with Refused, putting out that record, The Shape of Punk, Punk to Come in 1998, and then they come back like, almost 20 years later and everyone's like, well, wait, it's not the same band. And it's like, well, you know, you kind of have to picture what the journey would have been like all those Juliana theory records that would have come out every two to three years. And here we are. That's and, and I feel like it kind of works. You know, there's a modern sound to it, but there's also sort of something there that re just reminds me of you. If that makes any sense. No, I think that's, I think that's great. And I, it's you you said it exactly the same way that we had been saying it all along it's like we had always changed our sound 
pretty much from record to record. And yeah. we kind of thought of that exact same progression of, hey, what what would this be if we hadn't stopped? We kept changing with each record. But at the same time, too, we've always been really schizophrenic. And so can't go home being the first thing people heard. Yeah. It's easy to say like, oh, well, that's the sound. But it's not because, um, you know, it's, it varies wildly between various things that are coming. So, well, for sure. Just, yeah. Well, for yeah. sure. I mean, I know all about your musical background. I mean, I remember Pensive. I, you know, I'm, I'm old school enough. Um, and, you know, obviously, like, I know where you come from. I know the range of influences. And then, I mean, I want to get into all the stuff you've done, but everything from country music to horror movie soundtracks. I mean, I feel like when you when you're approaching a project like this and you are you, there's just so many tools in the toolbox uh, to use at any given moment. I mean, how could the new Juliana Theory record not have so, like so many different elements? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great way to look at it. For me, the most important thing was because there's definitely been a large batch of songs that did not get put into the Juliana Theory pile because I didn't feel that they right had the right feeling or the right mm-hmm. emotional core if that makes sense yeah. and so when i would be you know working on stuff i would say oh yeah this sounds pretty different sonically but does it have is it talking about the the right subject matter is it does it come from a specific feeling and i can't necessarily pinpoint in an explanatory way what that feeling is but i know it when i'm when i'm making it and there was just a certain emotion that i was trying to make sure i was always tapping into and so it always felt like hey okay maybe this maybe this piece of music might not sound exactly like emotion is dead and honestly it shouldn't but does it have these specific elements that i think make it juliana theory songs in whatever time period. And that was kind of like the internal rule book I sort of set for myself to kind of try to keep things in line, if that makes sense. It it does. And what's funny, I think, with with everything is, you know, back in the day, it was pretty normal to have a band like the Juliana Theory playing with a band like Zayo. You know, like there were super, super crazy metal metalcore bands playing with really soft emo bands and then there'd be a ska band on the show. You know, there was a lot of of that, but at the same time, I do feel like there was a lot of rules and a lot of like, that's not cool. You know, like if you added some bands like adding a piano or a keyboard in in like their band was lame, you know, or synths were lame, Um, you know, and I feel like all that's kind of been stripped away now. Like there's just a lot less rules. Yeah, I think that's a good thing. And you're definitely right. There were, that's a big part of what kind of always drove the band was a little bit of us trying to push back against that. We always <laughs> felt, we always felt that pigeonholed kind of set of rules. And we would always try to be like, oh, you think this is what you're getting from us now? Okay, we're going to flip the script. And I think in general, that was just, to me, that is punk rock because you look at like, I don't know what I, when I think of like great punk innovators, of course you just said refused. That's, that's a, a 
a wonderful example, but I, right. you know, I think of, I think of like Ian and Guy and Fugazi yeah. in general. And yeah. I think of like, think about, even think of Ian's career. And if you start, if you start with minor threat and then you see how far sonically it changed to embrace, which was so yeah. soon after that. And then how much Fugazi kind of rewrote rules the whole time they were going, becoming more and more melodic, becoming much more experimental, suddenly having two drummers playing on a song. And, you know, it's like, I kind of think that to me, that that is the spirit of punk rock is kind of like, oh, this is what we're supposed to do. We're going to totally do something else. And I think like, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. all my favorite artists, they that's what they all do. You look at, you know, you look at Neil Young, he was like the, you know, has been the master of that since, since day one or, or Bowie or Beck or yeah. anybody. I mean, it's just, it's just the, it's just, yeah, it's fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I want to go back and talk about the old days a little bit, uh, and then transition sure. back into how we got here on the phone talking. Um, but you know, with your band pensive and, and I remember pensive, um, a lot of people don't. And a lot of people that try to search for it, they find a different pop punk band. But um, I remember it. And I found this incredible interview that you did in the 90s when you were 19 oh years old. Oh, my goodness. Do you know this? Wow. Ex- you don't know if this exists, I guess. I, I probably have no idea. And I'm horrified <laughs> of what I may have said. To no, so many things. No, it was it was it was it was very it was cute and it was honest and it. I think that it it probably speaks to just you know where you came from a lot and uh, and obviously that band was you know kind of your main thing for a while until um, you know you played in Zayo played in guitar and I mean for people that don't know Zayo one of the most influential metalcore bands ever and the record that you were a part of where Blood and Fire Bring Rest I mean it's probably the most influential metalcore album. I mean, not talked about enough, but seriously influential. Um, talk to me about those days. And then obviously the Juliana Theory was the side project. Um, yeah, I mean, okay, first of all, I've, nobody's ever brought up Pensive, like ever, no. on anything I've ever I, done. So. I don't remember if I saw Pensive or not. I think I was supposed to. At, I don't know if it was a fest or a show um, in Canada. I grew up in the Toronto suburbs, um, and, but I remember I was supposed to see Pensive, and then I never did. But I, I had your records and all that. Probably still. That's do. that's crazy. Um, so I don't know. I mean, to me, that time period. So I'm going to say like late '90s, mid late '90s, mm, punk emo hardcore world was it was a very small and tight knit but also large if that sounds so stupid but it really you know it was like there were a lot of there were a lot of things that were disconnected but had a through line so you would you would have like Western PA hardcore that sound where I'm from that had a sort of a little bit of a sound to it. And then you'd, you'd go to Cleveland and you'd be like, Oh, check out, check out these, you know, these hardcore bands from Cleveland. Right. And then there would be like, Oh, there's the Southern California sound. And that was totally different. And then there was like the, the, you know, what I always pictured, like the upstate New York, like Syracuse. Yeah. Um, like 
Victory Records, like sort of like the Earth Crisis snap case thing. And then yeah. there was the, then there was like the, I don't know, there was just like a lot of strange little sub communities, but I'm going to bring it, I'll bring it back again to, to something you just brought up because it was a, you know, we look back at like generational things and obviously everybody in, in my era sort of has like the Nirvana touchstone, but at the same time you brought up refuse and that reminds me of, of a story that I, I, I think of often because it, it sort of encapsulates that era. And so first Juliana theory tour ever, it is, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's, it's 1999. Uh, our first record, Understand This Is a Dream, has not come out yet, or okay. it has just come out. And we are on our first U.S. tour. I booked the whole tour myself, and um, I booked the tour from contacts I made on tour with Zayo. And so we're on like maybe the third third show tour. It's in Louisville, Kentucky, and we're playing... I swear, like like you just said, with a hardcore band and a ska band. And yep. the ska band was from <laughs> Pennsylvania. And, and oh, and Discount was also playing. And okay. so it was like this weird, just like totally random show. And this guy pulls us aside and he goes, he goes, you guys have to see this. Have you seen, have you seen the new Refused video for New Noise? new noise and we're like no no we haven't seen it yet <laughs> and he's like come here and he pulls us aside and pulls out this vhs tape with like the <laughs> the taped logo on the side with a handwritten refused and he pops it in the vcr player and we watch this video we're all dumbfounded like this is this is amazing this is totally next level and yeah the guy's like all right you guys should take this with you <laughs> and because we had we had a like a TV and a and a VHS in our in our van, and so he gives us this he gives us this VHS, and we take it along with us. And like as we're driving around, we're like playing it for people in the van. And so that sort of to me always that was like that's how something went viral in that era. And so it's like right. you you say like, what was it like back then? And so for me, it was like, we had, we'd almost like stewards of, of, of a scene where there would be like somebody who was a couple of years older that in, in my case, it was uh, the singer for this amazing underrated hardcore band called Passover yeah. from my town. And and the singer for this band, Jack had the biggest collection of, seven inches and rare things at his house. And it would be, you know, it was, it was like everything from the doghouse catalog, everything from ebullition, everything from, it was like everything on revelation records and initial right, and all right. that stuff. He had all that. And of course I didn't, at that point I was kind of only like a hardcore kid and he was like, come over here and I'm going to play you stuff. And I'll, I'll remember like, went to his house and he's like, have you heard this before? And he pulls out a cap and jazz record and yeah. he plays that. And he's like, have you heard this before? And it's Texas is the reason, et cetera. And right. so it's like, he made me a bunch of cassette tapes and I listened to them like crazy and then made copies and gave them to, gave them to friends. And they would be like, Oh, have you heard Sensefield? Have, have you heard Jawbreaker? Whatever it was. And so I feel like we have 
our own version of that now with maybe playlists and whatever. Right. But there was something about the act of having to make a mixtape or the act of having to copy a VHS and give it to somebody else that I think that tactile sort of being able to hold something in your hand and yeah. the act of physically making it, I don't know if it made, maybe it, did it make things mean more to us? I'm not I, sure, but I, I think it yeah. had to have, because I think of, and it also could be partly our age too, right? You know, you're at a, you're at an age where you're just like a sponge and you're soaking up everything and you're so excited, you know, and, and you know, once you get into your late thirties or forties, I'm not sure how old you are, probably around my age. I'm 39. You know, you, um, I think, you know, it, the, the magic wears off a little bit, unfortunately, but I have the same story. I mean, the, the band, the older band that I looked up to where I grew up was great. Um, I don't know if you remember Grade on Victory Records. No, uh, we played we played a show with we played a show with Grade and Hot Water Music, and I think it was like our third or fourth show ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, that was the band I looked up to, and um, I, I wasn't friends with the singer, unfortunately, until much later. Um, shout out to Kyle, but the the uh, but same thing. I had a mixtape, and it had all these yeah, new new cool bands. Because for me, it was more like. I was more into like the rancid and the no effects and like that scene. And, but then when I heard, uh, you know, lifetime and I heard, uh, 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 of course the promise ring and mineral, you know, those were the bands that changed me, but you know, it's, it was hard to find that stuff, especially where you grew up. I'm sure you had to go to a major city to probably, you know, or, or somebody had to have as, um, like a distro they would bring to shows, right? That was yep. a way you could get records, but it was, it was, you know, overall, it was just much harder to obtain. And therefore I think you're right. It, it meant more. I agree. I think, I just think, I think the access that people have now is incredible and the access to the fact that you don't have to go to a major recording studio to make stuff and that you can basically have everything at your fingertips now and listen to anything you could think of is incredible. But the downside of that is it doesn't, there was something where if you could only buy one CD that week and oh, yeah. or that or that, that month. month, yeah, for sure. And you bought that CD, and you were like, "Man, I don't think I like this." And then you would have to listen to it like five or six times. And <laughs> by the fifth or sixth time, you'd be like, "Yo, this is actually sick." All right. And a lot of the times, like, it's my favorite things that live on the longest in my life now are things that I probably didn't like at first. I remember a lot oh, yeah. of times not liking something and then having to keep listening to it. And that's what I think. The other thing we lose with having, you know, infinite choices yeah. is you might not spend as much time with something and we're easier to just kind of dismiss it and right. skip to the next. Because, whereas, be, yeah. yeah, because the best music isn't always the music that grabs you right away. You know, I mean, how many records are there that you heard, you know, that at first? Yeah, like it was like, OK, this is all right. And it grows on you. And then the ones that grab you right away, sometimes they they end up kind of being more short lived. That's 100 percent. 100% true. Um, well, I want to I want to talk about I mean, we're talking about this transition from, you know, you being this hardcore kid, all, you know, talking about initial records and and all these different things. And, you you know, all of a sudden, uh, it, within the course of a couple of years, the Joanna theory goes from, you know, a band with a demo tape to signing to a major label. And in the meantime, putting out 
I mean, a legendary emo record in me. Emotion is dead. Uh, and the first one's not bad either. Um, you know, that transition, I mean, it was a very steep climb and a quick climb to kind of going from, hey, I'm this punk kid to like kind of entering mainstream music where you still are. It was a like it was a wild time in general, I, I think, because, you know, I remember when I feel like I can remember the first time we knew of anybody like that had made the jump from indie land to a major was, was at the drive-in and right. I'll never forget the, the bands, the band's second, actually, this is, this is, I, I always enjoyed this story, but there was a, a friend of mine and I, my friend, Jeff Kish, and I always talk about this story because we were in his basement in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. And we're about, we're, booking basically what's going to be Juliana Theory's second show in our, and it's in our hometown and it's at this tiny little extremely dumpy dive called the Dairy Theater and it was basically just this um, I guess like this guy calls us on the phone and he's like hey can can you put can you put out uh, this band I just started working on on your on your show I, I just saw that you have this show coming up or whatever and they have they're driving through Pennsylvania on that date and we're like, yeah, yeah, we can, we can throw them on, you know? And he's yep. like, cool. What? And we're like, what are they called? And he's like, they're called at the drive-in. We're like, okay, cool. <laughs> so he puts at the drive-in on and we went, you know, we'd never heard them. There was no way to listen to them. We didn't know what, what they were. And so yeah. we get this, we're playing this show and there's like, you know, it's maybe 40 people are there and these dudes roll up in this kind of like dumpy van and they all, pile out and they look like nothing you've ever seen before and <laughs> they, they get on stage do. and literally it was just a completely my it was a, like a mind-blowing show they were they were incredible and there were like you know 30 30 people there maybe yeah and i just remember like almost felt like the world stopped when they played and i remember thinking wow like this band has something and so i you know we we always kind of followed what they were doing. And I, you know, remember like a year later, year and a half, maybe, you know, maybe it's two years later, they signed to a major and whatever. And it, it felt like, yeah, that makes, that makes total sense. And that felt like, that felt in a way like a, like a sort of like a watershed moment at that point in time, because to us, we were, you know, we were fans of the band, but we're also like, Hey, our, our second show was with this band and we booked them on the show and nobody even knew who they were and nobody knew who we right. were. And it was like, you could see, you could sort of sense that something was, you could sort of sense that something was happening. And it was like, yeah. So they talk about, you know, you hear about like, Oh, the Seattle scene or whatever. And I'm not sure it was, I'm not sure it was like that, but you know, you know how it is. It's like, there's, yeah there's just a time when something seems to connect a little bit more with the mainstream or they, they can tell it's going to, and I don't know. It, it just was one of those felt like, felt like a magical time though, because bands, uh, a lot of bands were tapping into something that felt authentic and it felt real. And you, you know, you'd play like we would, we would tour with Sensefield or we would tour with Elliot or these bands yeah. that, all, all felt different and sounded different and had their own 
had co- completely had their own vibe. And, you know, maybe five or six years later, a lot of that, it seemed like things homogenized a lot more after certain bands like totally blew up. Then you would just hear like, you know, we'd take three bands on tour and they all sort of sounded like they all came yeah. from the same exact direct lineage of whatever this really big thing was. But yeah, yeah it was a, it was an interesting time because even though there were the rules that we were talking about, it also felt like individuality and like having, you know, a unique kind of thing also still was really valuable, Absolutely. which I still think it is. But yeah, 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 totally. So with the record Emotion is Dead, you know, and this being such an influential record, massive success, um, but also it was a little bit ahead of the time of like, this is before the Taking Back Sundays or the Thursdays, you know, a couple of years before where I feel like maybe people weren't quite ready for that music to kind of blow up you know, on MTV or on the radio or whatever. Um, so, I mean, when you guys eventually, you know, reaped the benefits of that success, that record, and then signed to Epic and put out love, and obviously, you know, the band broke up a few years after that. Talk to me about that whole, you know, looking back on that era of the band and what happened. Because, um, you know, I remember the statement you put out was like, I couldn't find it, but it was very long. Uh, you know, and it seemed like it just kind of had come to an end. I mean, financially, it got harder, and that was kind of the end of it. That's a long. That's that feels like that's the entire timeline. Answering <laughs> <laughs> one question. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you want to say next question, it's okay. <laughs> no, no. Um, let me. Uh, okay, so I'll start it. I'll I'll start right like right before emotion is dead. So. We, when we made our first record, that was basically, you know, there was no expectations on the band in any way, shape or form. Very few people knew who we were at that point. And we kind of, I think we really got our record deal on Tooth and Nail because I was in Zayo. And that's really where that came from. Yeah. And so, you know, we made that record and like I'll go on the record as saying since this is lead singer syndrome <laughs> I never wanted to be a singer in a band and that I had always just been like the guitar player in bands and so there was a a group of a group of friends from my hometown that some of us had played in bands together and some of us just played shows together in friend like bands we were friends with and and like you know like josh and i worked at the worked in the movie theater together etc but it was hey why don't we start uh why don't we start this fun melodic side project band and our goal was to do a three-song demo tape and to play one or two shows yeah and the thing was that oh hey some of us will switch instruments and i don't think i don't know where the idea of me singing came from (laughs) but i was just like Somehow I was like, yeah, whatever, and Brett, you can sing, or, or I said, I'll sing. And so, you know, we weren't taking it very seriously, but then as things progressed a little bit longer and we made our first demo and seemed like people were liking the band and whatever, I, you know, gave this gave demo to the, the head of Tooth & Nail because it was literally the only label I knew, like personally, anybody at. And I just remember when he was like, 
X amount of time passed and he's like, all right, yeah, I want to, let's, let's like, let's, you know, let's go make a, let's make a record. I remember after they hadn't heard any demos, there was no, there was no like preview besides the actual demo that got assigned, which most of those songs, well, a couple of them went on the record, mm-hmm. but they, there wasn't any like, this is what we're going to go record. And so I remember when we sent the record to the label afterwards, and Brandon, the head of the label, called me on the phone. He was like, whoa, wow, I had, I had no idea what to expect. I was ready to like, <laughs> he was like, I was ready to spend, to spend money to hire somebody with that new auto-tune thing to, to fix all your vocals if you couldn't <laughs> sing. Because this was like right when auto-tune had just come out as like a rack unit. <laughs> And, and the studio didn't have it. There was no computers on our first record at all. And, and so he was like, I was ready to go hire like somebody to go in auto-tune because I didn't think the, the guitar player from Zayo would, would be able to sing. And now I go back and listen to that record, and I'm not sure that I really could sing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, right. hey, but anyways, I just remember like, so there was, that's how little of pressure there was. It just felt like, hey, we're going to spend, we'll give you 6,000 bucks to make this record. And hopefully it'll be cool because it's somebody from Zayo and a few people seem to like you guys and whatever, but there wasn't, there wasn't really any, like nobody really knew who we were and there wasn't any real pressure. And so we made the first record and it was just really fun. And then the whole process of like leading up to emotion is dead was that was just a, a time period of, of a lot of creativity and a lot of, um, you know, just a lot of everything was still new and and exciting and fresh, but at the same time we made that record and we, we kind of felt that we were going to probably break a lot of rules intentionally and unintentionally, whether it was having, a large amounts of drum programming and right, exactly. keyboards or whether yeah. it was like having like, um, you know, gospel backing vocals or like all kinds of just a, like a 10 minute song with the, like three guitar solos or whatever it was, things that were not typically expected or supposed to be on the types of records that we were supposed to be making uh, right uh, yeah. whatever and, and so that's where i feel like i do feel in a way that we were a couple you know i do feel we were a couple years early with what we did on on emotion is dead you know you look at a song like top of the world and we were yeah. in a way sort of crucified for making something that that blatantly pop but at the same time it was sort of you know it was that was just a really natural thing that just sort of came out and it wasn't like something we didn't overthink like that song we just kind of you know josh played this bass line and i came up with these couple vocal melodies like really quickly and the song just kind of evolved in a really short amount of time but it was like you know it took a few years. It, took, it felt like four or five years later, I remember I went to this, you know, I went to this bar in New York and I ran into a couple of guys in bands and that I didn't really know, but they were all like, yo, we loved your band. We love your band. And, 
this was like right after we had broke up and right. they started telling me all these stories and I'm like, and they're like telling me about how they're making records and what they're working on. And I remember going and checking some of it out and just being like, this is also incredibly pop. This is like just unabashedly pop, which I always felt like was TJT's biggest strength was when we went simple and hook oriented, but we got, at one point, like sort of lambasted for doing that. And so it was just funny then to see, oh, it's totally cool now to, there's no shame in, in wanting to make something that's catchier. There's no, no shame in wanting to, you know, I don't know. It was just, it's just interesting to see that how, how rules and how rules change over time. Like you, you remember the time period where, a band would, it was like the kiss of death if you were to take like some sort of, like if you got a commercial opportunity to have your song associated with a brand, oh, yeah. you would like think like, there's no way we could do that. Whereas now it's like, you don't survive as an artist almost well, yeah. if you're not getting something like that. And it used to be like, this band's not cool because they had this association with whatever brand. Whereas now it's like, did you hear so-and-so on the new Apple commercial? They're sick. It's kind of like the entire, the entire script has completely flipped and changed. So yeah, it does feel a little bit like we were doing a few things a little bit too early, Yeah, but for sure, you know, no, it's, no big deal. Well, you know, signing to to Epic and, you know, you talk about going from literally your first record having no pressure to probably a lot of pressure, um, you know, and obviously I, I assume you guys got dropped after that record. Um, there were high standards, which were maybe impossible to meet. Um, but but talk to me about just that whole that whole experience. That process, was, that was a weird one because we... So I remember we had basically, we had the full on bidding war thing that, you know, happens to everybody. I feel like when, when, you know, X amount of months after Motion is Dead came out, we could see a strange, it felt like a phenomenon. And hmm. I had sort of seen it happen with Zayo and that felt completely alien to me, but it started happening with TJT, like we would play a show in, let's say we play a show in Nashville, for instance, and we we're going to play at, at the end, which fits 200 people maximum. And it is, there's like 245 people there. And, you know, there's 30 kids outside that are, you can sort of tell they're like, they're singing along from the outside. You can hear them cheering after the song's over. Then you come back two months later and you're playing across the street at Exit Inn, and that's 450 cap, and it's, right. it's totally sold out. And so you could feel like, whoa, I don't know what is happening, but something is happening to where, like, is it word of mouth? I'm not sure. And so we, we knew that it felt like things were connecting. And at that same point in time, I guess, you know, that's when, I guess that's when labels started kind of calling, and we would have... You know, we'd have, I remember 
Rick from Electra came and like rode in our van for four days and we had like, you know, we literally just had the full, we had the full bidding war with like every major label. And I think, you know, it's a, that's a long, that's a long story in itself, but I'm, we made the wrong choice on that department. Um, Like we should have, there's a couple other choices that we had that I'm, I'm 99% sure we should have done based on some things that I've seen and heard afterwards and things that people told me. But so we had, you know, so we signed Epic and we basically get, um, I think, I think our record, I think our budget for our record on Epic love was 45 times what the budget for (laughs) emotion is dead was 45 times. (laughs) Yeah. So, so needless to say, we could, uh, we could stay at much nicer places and, uh, places and, um, stay in the studio a lot longer and rent way more equipment and just be kind of stupid, uh, as you're, as you're supposed to do. But I think at that, at that point, you know, the band had sort of, we felt like, oh, everybody's, everybody's labeling us as this, like, only girls like your band. Right. Um, you can only make, <laughs> you can only make the poppiest, you guys are the emo boy band and whatever. And at the time, it's funny, but at the time it's like, I was, you know, I was in Zayo and then I kind of like quit to kind of do Juliana Theory stuff more. And we had suddenly kind of like, uh, it felt like we were blowing up off of the most like melodic poppiest kind of stuff. And so we're like, we're on a major label now. We need to prove to, we need to prove to our, ourselves and prove to everybody else that we're, you know, that we're, we're not just bubblegum pop thing that we're a, we're like a, a legitimate rock band and that we can, we can rock or whatever. And so we really just kind of doubled down on the, like on the guitar aspect of the band and just like really like, you know, and that wasn't, that wasn't a calculated move of like, Oh, we're going to, we're going to blow up or this is what people want. It's just what we were feeling. It's just like, I don't know if it's just a cycle of a whatever, but long story short, I think I now, I think those records have sold the same amount pretty much. (laughs) But at that point in time, you know, it was, it was received. I think the record was received pretty poorly by the head of the label. She had been told by some people that worked at the company and a band on the label who shall remain nameless that we made the wrong record. And that kind of just like kind of cycled through the whole like Epic records chain of like, you know, our first, our A&R guy got fired in the middle of like the process. And then, so we lost our we lost our voice at the company, Jim Welch, and then ends up being like this whole, oh, you didn't make the record that we think you should have made. Right, right. And so I remember the week before the record came out, they were they were like, We're not gonna do any of the stuff we said we were gonna do to push your record. And so I remember it like came out and there was like really no promotion or anything. And it's still I think it's still sold like I don't know, like 17,000 the first week or something like that. Yeah. With no, with no push. And they called us a week later and they, n- not even, they call us like that week and they're like, Hey, do you guys want to start talking about, let's regroup and start talking about the next record. 
because this one's dead <laughs> in the water. Oh my and god! Now, mind you, they had sat on the record for seven months and didn't put it out. And in that time period, it completely leaked. And uh. you know, I remember, I remember going to going to the UK, touring the UK, and playing a playing this show in London and every person knew every word to to the new songs that were not out yet so it was just like Epic didn't believe in us they didn't or at least they didn't believe in the record that we made they didn't want to support it they didn't give us the money that like for you know we didn't get to make a music video we didn't get to do a bunch of the things that we were supposed to do they called us a week later and they're like hey your record's dead let's talk about the next one and we had our option in the contract that we could we could leave and they had to pay us and so we were like oh, we're out option. of here yeah so that's... we so we just took an exit and they had to write us a check so i mean in i you could say we're a drop but yeah but we we chose it and like we yeah. could have continued with them and maybe we should have but it was like how could you it just felt it felt like a betrayal to go basically spend six months recording an album and then have to wait like nine months for it to come out and then them to say, we're not promoting this. And then a week later to say, we're not gonna, you know, it's dead. At that point in time, you know, I've worked so much longer in music and in now in movies that I, I see how hard it is to get anything made. I see how, <laughs> how much like, I see how much turmoil filmmakers have to go through and how how difficult it is to have things happen. And my skin is a lot thicker. But at that point in time, it's like the only thing you do. And you're like, you're on tour. And then you come home and you work on this record. And so that was, I think that was a pretty big blow to us because we're still, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm like 24 at this point in time. So <laughs> still really, uh, I might, yeah, 23, 24. And so still like, you're just still young. And yeah. so you're trying to figure out like, well, this was, I put all my effort into this. This was my whole, my whole life. I grew up watching, watching bands on MTV and staying up late to watch Headbangers Ball and and 120 minutes and seeing you know seeing the you know the Smashing Pumpkins video for for Chair Brock or seeing like mm -hmm. the the Sunny Day Real Estate video on 120 minutes late at night and I'm like this is you know this is what I want to do and I think you got to be on a major label to make this happen and so you go through this whole like build up in your head and then you get to the point and then you're like yeah I guess I blew it. And, you know, it's just a weird, it's just a weird process to go from like, I always likened it to, uh, I always liken it to Spinal Tap, the movie, which is why I think I love that movie so much because there's like, there's this, that whole movie is sort of about this band that had already peaked and is now like coming on the other side of their success and they're like you know there's that scene where they're at the hotel room and the this guy comes in and they're like oh what, where, where's your show tonight he's like i'm playing the enormo dome and they're like <laughs> you know and they're playing this little like whatever dump across the street and i just felt like basically i felt like after after we were no longer on epic and the the industry 
in general viewed us as a failure because we went and we did this and it didn't work out and it wasn't as big as the record before it's suddenly like we're damaged goods and right. so for the next the next couple of years even though we were still trying to be creative and even though we you know made another record and and in many ways the band as far as how tight we were and how like how well everyone played together we were never better than we were the next couple of years after that but it felt like it it often felt like like we were living in spinal tap where it was like <laughs> it used to be better when we were here these shows were whatever it used to be cooler and it and it just felt like you could just feel like man have we you know i feel like we've we've toured the us 11 times as headliners how many more times can you do this to people start to get sick of you and it's just like yeah attention spans are short and so i think it just it's like you know you've been in a band for nine years it's the only thing you you've done you've you've not had much of a normal life and you just kind of come to this point you're like is this worth it anymore it doesn't feel like it feels like we've hit a plateau that that we're never going to get higher than this plateau and maybe we should just you know, maybe we should just give up. And I think I was just, I think I was just really, just really, really tired at, yeah. at, at the end of, you know, at the end of that era. And it's like, it was, yeah, it was like 10, I think I had just, I think I had toured full time pretty much for like 10 years and you just get, you just worn out. Yeah. At that point. Well, you talked, you talked in another interview about you heard Johnny Cash and you kind of like later in your life, you know, and uh, like later in your life, as in like you were 23 and um, it kind of changed you. And was that what brought your foray into your country music um, career? Because that, that was very as a fan of Juliana Theory, that was a very kind of shockingly strange thing to hear, um, especially the way you were singing and stuff. <laughs> um, it's funny because it's it's weird. I'm. I'm a very, um, how do I say this? I'm kind of like a person of extremes. And whenever I'm like doing something, I tend to like give whatever that thing is, like 130% of me. And then whenever that thing is done, I'm usually completely exhausted and I don't <laughs> even want to think about it. Right. And so... Like that'll happen when I'm working on movies now where I literally won't think about a single other thing or I'll only listen to a specific type of music for two years straight and I won't listen to anything else. And there was, there was basically, you know, there was a, for years I had been like listening to rock music, making guitar rock music. And it was all about how, how big can we make this? How layered can we make this? How, how can it, can we have 24 tracks of guitar playing at the same time? Can we have, you know, a drum machine and a real drummer playing with a synth bass playing with a regular bass guitar playing with like 15 stacks of my vocals. And it just is just a, like everything just started to feel stale to me in the world of like, rock music alternative rock guitar rock and at about the same time i discovered i discovered cash first um i heard live at san quentin and it kind of like just 
sort of stopped me in my tracks. And then very shortly after that, I heard like uh, the first American recordings record he did with Rick Rubin. And basically that the power of his, it was the power of his voice and hearing how simple these songs were. Yeah. Hearing how visceral and real and authentic his voice was and how simple the songs were and how stripped down they were really kind of caught my attention. And that sort of led me down a path that ended up going to, you know, Towns Van Zant and Bob Dylan and Guy Clark and Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard and Loretta Lynn and all of that just entire lineage. And I think it just felt, it felt fresh to me because there, I've always been attracted to music that feels authentic and has like a genuine emotion to it. And country music has always been about real people and real life and about real pain and about struggles and about heartache and about real life. And you can always sense, you can just feel a level of earnestness to it, but at the same time, they'll also have their fun songs and their funny songs or their honky tonk songs, just about like getting drunk or whatever. (laughs) And I don't know, it's just something about the more stripped down nature of, of it just sort of sucked me in. And I kind of just went full force for about, I don't know, seven, six, seven years where I kind of, that was the only thing I listened to. That was the only, you know, I would basically just like only watch documentaries about Graham Parsons and, (laughs) and or whatever. And, you know, and I just like went really, really hard in that direction. And so when I kind of, you know, I quit, I quit music for a couple of years and my girl and I started a vintage clothing store and it's same. And I was like, yo, I'm, I'm, I suck. Got dropped from a major. Nobody cares about the record we made after that. Um, I, I'm, I probably should get a grip and pick a real career or figure out something to do with my life because I'm clearly not very good at this. And I just kind of, you know, just kind of gave up. But at the same time, I, I was, just listening to all that, like, you know, roots music. And every once in a while I would think I had a song idea and I would quickly record it on this like handheld little recorder. And then I put it away, wouldn't pay any attention to it. And at one point after a couple of years, I guess I went and listened to it and I was like, Oh, I think, I think there's a record here, but it's definitely not, you know, it's definitely like a folk country kind of vibe record. And so the, like my couple records I did in that like vibe, my solo records are just, there's just the natural sort of the natural output from where I was at in my headspace and, you know, where I was at emotionally and what I had been listening to. And so it wasn't, again, it was definitely not a, Definitely not a calculated move. Oh, I'm going to make like this Americana music and then I'm going to like, um, you know, take over the world and blow up in that realm because like right. it was such a small niche sort of music 
it was just like, no, this is just what I love and this is what I believe in and this is what I love and to listen to right now. And so it was just, it was just, was natural. So I knew for, I knew for certain people that would hear it would be, definitely would be culture shock. But at the same time, you know, I just feel like you have to be, you have to be true to yourself. And so many of my favorite artists will take all types of, you could call them detours, but we'll take all kinds of different steps into different wearing different musical hats and then, you know, move around and try things out and see how they, how they fit. That certainly is you, uh, you know, and, and also the, all the movie soundtrack stuff you've touched on, uh, like the devil inside Brahms, the boy, you know, you know, like that must, I mean, it sounds like it must, must be a lot of fun, but also maybe a lot of work. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a lot of work and it can be a lot of fun. It, it's, uh, I'm still figuring it out. I feel like I'm still learning a lot. Um, and so, yeah, I have a lot to learn, but it, it's definitely, it's definitely challenging just because it's from a whole different, you know, like when you're making, when you're writing a song for yourself or for your band, that song is first and it leads the way but when you're scoring a movie the music you're making is all about what's happening on screen and your job is to help tell this that story you're you're a filmmaker in a way you're a storyteller so it's not necessarily about oh man i think this would be such a cool chord change to do here and if i did this arpeggio on a violin it could be really it would be really pretty well if the scene is not calling for that, there would be totally pointless to do that because your job is to move right. the story along in a certain way. So it's just a different, it's a completely different discipline in a way, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay. How did we get to this point? I mean, I know, you know, in, in 2010 you did, um, the emotion is dead tour, uh, 10 year tour, which at the time, you know, not a lot of bands had done that. Uh, I know Jimmy Eat world, I think they did a clarity tour a little bit before that, but it was, you know, it wasn't something that was really happening. And then you did some shows in 2017, including the warped rewind cruise. And then obviously you've talked about the acoustic tour that you did uh, last year. Uh, You know, was this just kind of like all these little things coming at you sort of just realized that you still have love for these songs um, and this project that you created in your youth? I think it was a lot of things. Um, I'm gonna ha- I'll have to give credit to there's there's a couple people that I think in certain ways helped jumpstart this, and one of those is is Craig Erickson, who used to run Rise 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 Records. Yeah, I love Craig. One of my favorite people. Craig's amazing, and uh, when we were, I think when we were, we were attempting to do a larger tour in 2017 that is another story that i'm going to skip but basically that was an ill-fated time in the band's business as far as some of the people we were working with and just a lot of things went completely haywire with that but at that same point in time craig hit me up out of the blue completely i didn't know him really i think maybe we had spoken once or twice in the past and i know i i'd spoken with matthew gordner at rise but Craig kind of like hit me up and was like, Hey man, I, I love the band. And I think, you know, we should, we should make a new record. And that was the first time 
that the seed had sort of been planted in my head and because I had been, I had been writing stuff for a couple of years before that, that I didn't, that I knew didn't fit my solo records, but I didn't know what it was. And I think a lot of, I think a lot of, um, you know, that just helped to kind of like, I don't know why, but that sort of, that the thought of the thought of making a record new Juliana theory music at first felt like, Oh, I'm not sure. Like how, how could we do that? That it would feel like the band, but also not feel like we're trying to be a throwback, you know, like, like just like, we don't want to sound like we're trying to be, we're not trying to recapture a certain era, but we're also, but we're trying to recapture the same spirit. And I think, you know, talking to Craig, he just said some really encouraging things and it, you know, I guess it planted a seed in my mind. And since I had been writing and I, I just kept, I just kept writing songs for a long time. And there is a, there's just a massive batch of songs that nobody will ever hear because a lot of them sucked, but there's, I just kept that in the back of my head. And, and I just kind of knew that like, Oh, it does you know it does seem like there are people that would you know whether there's people tweeting at me or whatever that are saying like (laughs) when will you make new music and so when basically josh fiedler and i got asked to do this acoustic tour last year i opening for the spill canvas i admittedly i was not familiar with that with the spill canvas and i also wasn't really didn't really think much of the idea of doing an acoustic tour. I didn't really think it was very cool, but it kind of fell at this exact time period where I had like a break after doing a movie. And I've been kind of for the last couple of years, just trying to force myself to say yes to things that I normally wouldn't say yes to. And I was just like, all right, let's just do it. And, you know, I knew I had these songs and I'd been working on them for a long time. And I really felt like I had a Juliana theory record. And I've been kind of like, uh, I'd been exploring the idea a lot, but going and doing that tour, we, you know, it's like 30 shows and that's the most we've connected with people playing Juliana theory songs in like 15 years. And so hearing people every single night say, you guys have to make something new. Will you make something new? Will you record new music? Will you make a new record? Like hearing that every night and seeing, looking out and seeing genuine connections of people when we're playing songs, hearing people sing them back to us is like, that was just like the final, I think that was just like the final like kick for me that I was just like, all right, we need to make this, we need to make this happen. There's, I feel like I have some, I feel like I might have a few things that I feel pretty strongly about that, that could be special. And I think there's a way to do this. And so it was just, yeah, it was just a, a, a period of multiple things like leading towards like, sometimes you just feel like it's the right time for something, but you can't, you know, you can't force, you can't force it because I wouldn't have been ready Right. A few years earlier. Right. Well, you got two new songs. Uh, well, when people hear this, there'll be two new songs out. 
um, uh, Can't Go Home being one of them. Uh, great video, by the way. Thank really, you. Really liked it. Really, really cool. Um, I imagine it must have been hard to have all those shots and make sure there were no people in the background, right? Um, what was that, what was that video uh, like making it? That was funny because I really did have to like really there is yeah so the storyline of the video is basically that this like character i guess it's me is walking from like familiar settings in the suburbs in the city and then slowly venturing out deeper and deeper into the wilderness you could say right. into unknown territory and totally alone and then at some point you like find somebody else that's like you and in that case it's josh my bandmate, and then you know, at the very end of the video, we're in this like crazy sand dunes in the middle of the desert. And we see this group of people off in the distance that are like, like a, you know, like a gang of outsiders, you could say. And right. it's like, oh, we found, we found our people or whatever. And I think the whole video like travels through all like, I don't know, there's like 40 different locations. And yeah. it was, yeah, it was, uh, we started in the, started in the city and it was definitely uh, all right. Let's shoot. If we shoot this, if we shoot this angle and wait for these people to pass, we have <laughs> we have about nine seconds to, to walk down this staircase before anybody else shows up. And then, like, or then in the editing process, was the same thing. Like, yeah. okay, we're walking past this skyscraper, and this looks really great, but uh, we need you to cut this two seconds earlier so there's nobody in it because it was literally supposed to feel like yeah. I was alone in this world that's, until yeah. watching it. That's the first thing I thought of was just the, the behind the scenes. Like, I wonder if there's <laughs> someone right there that they, that's why that's angled quite that way. But I really did enjoy the video. And, and I, I, um, I, that there's something to be said for that. Cause I don't know how many music videos I see these days, um, especially in pandemic times where I'm like, Oh, that's a really good video. Cause some of them these days are just, it's, you know, it's hard to make a good video anyway. Well, I got to say that I'm the next one for, for the song better now is man. It's incredible. Oh, and cool. I literally, I'm not, I'm not in it and I don't have a whole lot. I mean, I help come up with a storyline for it, but I can't take any credit for it, but it is what is by far and away the best thing the band has ever done visually. And awesome. it is really, it's, it's, I'm really excited about it. Awesome. Our, our buddy, awesome. Jesse Corman, who you may know from, his he's the singer of this band the number 12 looks like you oh yeah but yeah it's like one of my closest friends and an amazing like just an amazing director and producer of movies and stuff and he did this just incredible video i'm super excited for awesome it. man well thanks for doing this uh and talking to me for so long and, and just being so forthright um but i gotta ask you what's next what's coming um is there going to be a record what else can we expect from you know from the juliana theory and, and from yourself um as far as from the juliana theory there is there's multiple things coming. <laughs> okay, and, good, good, <laughs> good. <laughs> there are multiple things coming. That's all I'm allowed to say right now. Are we going to get a, a tour, like when we can tour again? Can we expect some full band shows too? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely going to happen. I mean, that the sad thing is that was like like so so many people. This is are saying this and and have had this happen, but we had like we had announced. New York and LA in 
you know, this, this year, oh, okay. but we, okay. uh, we actually had like 20, I think we had like 20 other shows that were like two weeks away from announcing right. that of course all were postponed indefinitely with COVID. So of course we were <laughs> going to do the biggest full band tour we had done in like eons this year and then yeah. that of course went on hold well, like it, it yeah. wouldn't be the juliana theory if something didn't go wrong right thank you thanks guys <laughs> <laughs> i mean i think every band can kind of say that though you know like because let's be let's be honest being in a band it's not easy it's just not easy i don't care what you say being in a band is literally like it is it is a way to embrace your own public embarrassment and, <laughs> yeah. and like it's like a job like the amount of the amount of times that i've been on a stage where something is going horrifically wrong with like a piece of equipment or something and you're so embarrassed and so but you have to like still try to entertain people like that is if you come up especially in like younger like in your bands before your big band and the amount of times you've or the amount of times I am have embarrassed myself on stage <laughs> is so is so many times that just like yeah you just it's just like you you're prepared for a life of uh, a life of some form of, of laughable calamity when, if you're in a band that's it in a nutshell right there Brett man thanks for this um, thank I've got, you I've got one random question to ask you there was this band yeah. from Pennsylvania in the late '90s they were called projection or x projection x do you remember this band Man, that sounds really familiar but i don't think i can place it but it does sound they familiar. Were, they were the only reason i ask you is because i know they were from i i'm not sure what part of pennsylvania but i had their tape i saw them play one show and that's all i ever knew about the band i could never find them on the internet or anything and i always wondered because i really liked their tape back in like probably 97 uh so i always ask people people of you know my age uh you know uh from pa if they know this band but um maybe someone will hear this and remember this band uh they were kind of like a punk punky like i don't know i don't know i honestly i I haven't heard the tape in probably 15 20 years to remember but um yeah i just wanted to ask you that question but um anything else to tell the people before i let you go i've got nothing that i know of (laughs) okay man thank you this has just been such a great talk and um i wish you all the best with everything you got going on and hopefully we get back to normal a little bit and we can play some shows i agree thanks shane appreciate it thank you brett so there it is with brett what a great podcast episode that was i was so happy to pick his brain finally after all these years of wondering things and talking about the old days and Pensive and Zayo and everything else and what a journey that guy has taken and it's not over. The Juliana Theory is back in a big way and they just released another new single, Better Now, is out now, new video for it as well, check out that and keep your ear to the ground more news is coming a little birdie told me so yes some things to be expected from the juliana theory i am super super excited so yes if you're listening to this before friday 12 30 p.m eastern standard time i will be live on twitch with canadian singer songwriter tay bay 
this guy's written like three number one hits in the last 18 months. He is awesome and it'll be super informative. So yes, if you listen to this before Friday, 1230 p.m. Eastern, check that out for sure. And next Tuesday, I'll be on Twitch with Derek Sanders of Mayday Parade. That'll be super big too. For all that, you head over to twitch.tv slash Shane Told. Give it a follow. Check out the schedule. With Derek, it will be Tuesday at 3 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Don't miss it. Anyway, I will leave you with a tune. Here is one of two new singles from the Juliana Theory and a great video for this song as well. Don't miss that. This one's called Can't Go Home on Lead Singer Syndrome. Peace and love. See you next time.